0: Why don't you turn to Zechariah chapter 11? One of the things I often am thankful for in in kind of a cool way, but I also have to remind myself that it wasn't all, you know how you have memories that were glorious memories of your past? And then you kind of remember, oh, it wasn't really that glorious. Um, This is one of those. I have fond memories of growing up on our little farm as a kid. And I talk about it, you know, from time to time. And my wife, she's like, oh, Brett, man, we need to get some farm animals like when you were a kid, you know? And, like, uh, and, I, and then I think about it, I'm like, wait a minute, that was a lot of work. Uh, I'm not sure I have the energy to do what my parents did. We, we had a little, little, you know, piece of uh, farmland out in the middle of nowhere in Applegate, Oregon. It wasn't large, but it was big enough to where we had horses, cattle, sheep, chickens, goats, Uh, geese, rabbits, uh, quail, bees, um, even worms. (laughs) If you're old enough, you remember when the worm farm was really popular. You guys remember the worm farm? Uh, We actually uh, started one of those, at least I did. Uh, And it was great for fishing, but also good for the garden, you know, kind of thing. But we had all those animals. And, um, you know, of all the animals that we uh, had uh, of that list, including the worms, the sheep were the dumbest. Oh, they were cute and cuddly and all that, uh, but they were really, really dumb. And that's the problem. You know, it's funny when the Bible compares you and me to sheep, uh, it's, it's actually a little painfully true. Um, no wonder the Lord says that, you know, to us. I'm reminded, you know, that what Isaiah the prophet said, all we like sheep have gone astray. You know, we've turned everyone his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're the sheep who go astray and good thing for us. We have a good shepherd in the Lord. In fact, the Bible talks all about the good shepherd. He becomes the chief shepherd and then the great shepherd, like uh, as, as Jesus the shepherd. Man, what a glorious truth that is. And, you know, when we, when we read about this shepherd, um, in, in, in the you know, book of John chapter 10, there's some great passages there about what the, the shepherd does. And, you know, like, like John 10, 27, I love where it says, you know, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Um, this is what the the good shepherd does, and and the more we learn of the good shepherd, the safer, the better, the the more full and uh, satisfied we find ourselves as sheep. Um, now I know what the bad shepherd looks like because I was one. Uh, when I was when I was I think I was like seven or eight years old. I I entered into the 4-H with a a lamb because my sisters did. Um, I also did a um, had a. Uh, her heifer that I uh, entered in, but that, that's a whole other story. She was demon possessed. But my, but my my lamb was really nice. His name Pierre. He was a Suffolk lamb with a little white mustache, and he just looked like a Pierre, you know. Um, and so we called him Pierre, and he was great and everything. But. The problem is I did everything right, you know, to get them all ready for the fair, but I was a total greenhorn. I didn't know how to take care of sheep, but you know, we were learning from the 4-H people and stuff. But the one thing that I didn't notice, I I should have noticed something was wrong with them. I, I didn't really notice until I got to the fair and compared them to all the other sheep. Um, He looked puffy and clean. Like I did all the right trimming. You know, you, 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 shear them just at the right time of the year so that their wool grows out just long enough. And then you you learn how to shear them and make them perfectly smooth. Their little, you know, uh, smooth wool uh, coat is just perfect. And I don't know if you knew this, but when you wash a sheep over and over again, the wool is white as snow. It's really cool. It's not the yellowish brownish color, uh, but they're just white and fluffy and got them all. But when I got up to the fair, I realized my sheep was shaped different than all the other sheep. Um, and I remember looking at them and they all looked so you know, healthy and muscular and mine looked like a basketball. Um, he was very round and it wasn't the way I trimmed his wool. Uh, it was, he was round uh, and he had a big round belly. And, um, and so, you know, you, you weigh in and you do all this stuff and you have to make, you know, get in there. And, and I remember the judges said, son, you can't show this, this sheep. I'm like, why? Uh, He's already, look at him. Pierre's a wonderful lamb, you know? And he says, they they sadly said, son, your, your lamb, it it made weight, but it didn't make grade. Uh, And the reason he didn't make grade is that son, your, your sheep has worms. that's that's the problem, I didn't realize Uh, so I was disqualified from showing in the normal bracket I had to show Pierre in the loser bracket uh, where all of us losers went around showing our sheep that were dying of worms and stuff like that now, uh, thank the Lord for Les Schwab tires because my dad knew the, the manager at Les Schwab there in Medford and, and, uh, and that guy, I think his name was Sam back in the old days. Sam was a great guy. And I think he had pity on me because you know, you, then you sell your sheep uh, on the market. Uh, and um, and, 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 and uh, I remember out of pity, I think that the Les Schwab guy bit on my lamb and sold it, you know, and I made some money off of my uh, worm infested sheep um, because of Les Schwab, thank the Lord. I am the bad shepherd uh, and, uh, and I, I felt horrible, you know, cause I, I didn't know that he had worms, you know, but, but anyway, that's, that's, there's, a, there's a good shepherd and there's a bad shepherd. And as it turns out, Zechariah chapter 11, it's about the bad shepherd. And it's, it's very much about how the people of Israel are like sheep who've gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. But instead of turning to the good shepherd, um, there's a prophecy about how the, the children of Israel were turned to the, the wrong shepherd, the foolish, uh, evil shepherd. And we're gonna see that here in Z- uh, Zechariah chapter 11. So um, let's take a look. Um, don't, don't forget that here, the Lord cr- calls out to Israel all throughout the Bible about being the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23 declares. Don't forget that. Um, but meanwhile, the people are gonna look to the wrong shepherd. I think we're doing that today. And we'll see some correlations here in Zechariah chapter 11 uh, to that kind of behavior. Let's take a look. Zechariah 11, verse 1. It says, um, Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. Howl, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. Now, pause here just for a second. This is an interesting introduction. And one of the things you might find sometimes when you're reading the, uh, the Bible is sometimes just like, man, the way things are worded. And, and it's not just the King James. Some of you even get into it with your fancy newer translations, the ESV and the NIV and some others. And, and they're great. But even even with that, you're like, what in the world is being said? One of the things that's fun about the Bible is, um, you know, you have to look at it multi-layered. It does help sometimes to go back to the original language of the Bible. But um, some of you are like, well, Brett, we're not Greek or Hebrew scholars, nor do we know Aramaic. So uh, good luck with that. Good news. You, you know, we're spoiled today because we have so many cool bits of software and stuff that helps us with Greek and Hebrew and all the language stuff. If you have Logos Bible software, you're golden. I mean, it's expensive and stuff, but it's amazing. The language studies and the dictionaries and their linears and all the stuff that we have, we're totally spoiled now to uh, be able to look into the Greek and the Hebrew and, and stuff like that. But there are times like here in Zechariah 11 that it's kind of rewarding because we miss something that's uh, a sort of a lit, uh, literary technique that uh, Zechariah is using here in chapter 11. He's using Hebrew rhyme and automatopoeia. Do you guys remember what automatopoeia is? Um, it's, it's, like, um, it's like those words that sort of sound like they sort of are, like crack or pop. Remember Batman, you know, uh, wham, you know, it's like uh, the old Batman series. Uh, I think they should bring those back, the, where the little you know, pow, smack, bam. Uh, well, that's, that's automatopia. Um, But the emphasis on these words that we have translated to howl and roar, um, this is basically a poetic, lament, dirge, um, rhyming sort of, uh, it's got rhythm to it when you read it in the Hebrew. And it's got almost a poetic value, but it's meant to be sort of sorrowful. And, uh, and a sad. it's a sad poem that sort of rhymes and has words that sort of sound like they really are in the Hebrew. So all that to say, um, that's kind of why some of your verses come off a little weird, depending on what translation you have. But um, when, when we're talking about these cedars and, um, and all that, let's read on verse three. It says, there is a voice of the howling of the shepherds for their glory is spoiled, a voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. Okay, so what's being talked about here? Well, the howling and the roaring, it's because it says there's a voice howling of the shepherds um, for their glory is spoiled. So we have to kind of wonder what shepherds are we talking about here? Um, That the, the lament of these shepherds are the ones that should have been really caring for the sheep, but they were not. And because the, the shepherds, as they're called here, of Israel were misleading the people. Remember the prophets that were giving them bad advice and saying stuff all through Jeremiah and Isaiah. You know, they, they didn't listen to the prophets, but they listened to their false shepherds and their false prophets who only told them things they wanted to hear and positive messages. Remember that? The, the shepherds, the prophets would only give them good things. Oh, you're going to be victorious against the Babylonians. You shall prevail. Remember that one prophet that came with the horns and was acting like a bull saying, like this bull. And he's acting like he's a bull. He's running around with his horns. Remember the total theatrical dude, uh, Mr. Thespian of the group. Um, and he's like, oh, like this bull, you guys are going to dominate. And, and because of the theatrics, the people were like, that's the one we're going to believe. He's theatrical, so we're going to believe him. They should have been listening to Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah says, you're all going down. Yeah, but we don't like that message. La, 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 la. We're not going to listen to that stupid message of Jeremiah. And they threw him in the dungeon while the other prophets, you're going to be victorious. And God loves you. He's going to be victorious. And I bet they had mullets. But anyway, that's a whole other deal. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm I'm just, just kidding around. Anyway, yeah. So sometimes the positive message might sound good to people, but you can be leading people astray even though it sounds good. That's these false shepherds here that are gonna be howling. The howling of the shepherds for their glory, that is the glory of Israel, if you would, is spoiled. The voice of the roaring young lions for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. Now, there's several locations here that are mentioned. And um, in in Zechariah chapter 11, the interpretation of this chapter is interesting because you'll hear many different interpretations, some of them are true. Some of them may not be true, but um, there's a lot of different interpretations. You'll hear from different commentaries and what have you. And um, maybe there's a combination of some of them uh, that are true and stuff. Zachariah definitely talks in sort of a multi-layered sort of way. So it can be a little confusing, let alone the, the language barrier that we have here of the Hebrew language. But there's a few things that help us build sort of our understanding of what's going on. And one thing is the, the, the places. Here in verses one through three, we have the first place mentioned, the cedars of Lebanon. Um, now, um, the reason it's called a white place, uh, which is kind of interesting, is um, because um, th- th- back in those days, uh, th- there was more uh, snow-capped mountains. And by the way, when you go to Israel, you can stand on the border of Lebanon and Israel uh, on, there's a mountain where they have a ski lift and they ski during the wintertime, snowboard and stuff up there. I've been on that ski lift. So the, the, the cedars of Lebanon grew in the mountains of Lebanon and there were, especially in the climate of those Hebrew you know, 500 years before Christ, um, there were more snow-capped mountains back then according to history. Um, but First um, but Kings chapter five, verse six tells us that that's where they got the cedars for the temple. So um, almost all of these things that are mentioned are sort of indirectly linked to the temple in Jerusalem. It's all about the temple, uh, really. If you just kind of make that a general rule, uh, the temple in Jerusalem is, remember we talked about this, it's it's God's focal point. Jerusalem's the epicenter of Bible prophecy and the Temple Mount is the epicenter of Jerusalem. So uh, you gotta kind of keep that tucked away in the back of your mind. So first Kings five, six, the cedars for the temple. Um, And so uh, then it talks about the next sort of area, the Oaks of Bashan. And that is none other than modern day Golan Heights, which is interesting. You say, well, Brett, I've been to the Golan Heights and there's not a lot of oaks there. There's a lot of landmines there. Uh, when you drive with us to um, um, Golan Heights, one of, the, one of the things that I've noticed that I've gotten used to it because I've been there so many times, but I noticed that our tourists, they're like, uh, Pastor Brett, uh, and, and there's these signs on the fence by the road. the road. The road that we're driving on up into the Golan Heights, there's these barbed wire fences and there's these old metal signs that say, Danger Landmines. And uh, so everywhere, when you're driving up there, you're like, oh man, uh, Brett, are we supposed to be up here? I'm like, as long as we stay on the pavement, but don't go running out there because uh, that may not be so safe out there from the, the Yom Kippur Six Day War, all those, those wars, there were landmines still out there um, in that, those fields. But, but uh, the Oaks of Bashan um, was a thing back in 500 BC, um, the big trees. Now we gotta say this, uh, in, in Israel, you gotta have a relative thing. When they talked about big trees, um, this is the Middle East. They're big trees for them. Here in Oregon, we have really big trees, okay? And the Bible, it's not that the Bible doesn't know that, it's just that the, the people of the Bible, the, the, big, the biggest trees they had were like some of our smaller version of trees, just, just FYI. Uh, when you hear about these great oaks of Bashan, they were not what you're thinking, uh, like the, some of the big oak trees we have, or the cedars, like the giant redwoods or anything like that. But they were impressive uh, trees. The cedars of Lebanon were, in fact, impressive Um, So you got the Oaks of Bashan mentioned here. um, And then also you have um, the the last group, the last place, which is sort of a big definition, Jordan. It says the pride of Jordan is spoiled there in verse three. Jordan is the Jordan Valley, um, which basically um, is saying that there's going to be devastation and the entire land from the, the spring waters of the Jordan, which goes way up to Tel Dan, and uh, you know Caesarea Philippi, and there's, a, there's another third spring in Lebanon of the headwaters of the Jordan River. But basically all the way down the Jordan River Valley, down through the Dead Sea, down to the Red Sea, from top to bottom of Israel, that's when it says the Jordan, we're talking about the Jordan Valley that extends the length of Israel. So basically the, the shepherds are gonna lament and howl because of the devastation that's gonna to happen to all of these places. The, te- the temple um, in Jerusalem, the uh, northern region of the Golan Heights, all the way down through the Jordan Valley to Eilat in Southern Israel. Uh, this is a definition of, of the, the people of Israel that's gonna be spoiled and devastated is the idea here. Now you say, Brett, why devastation? And why are they gonna be howling because of devastation? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It's because of the the people choosing to reject God. They they have made a choice. By the time Zechariah is on the scene, even to the captivity of Israel, even after the captivity is over, Zechariah comes back and they've rebuilt the temple, but the people are still in great uh, rebellion. And so Zechariah is saying there's going to be a howling because of their rejecting of the Lord. Now, by the way, Um, Some commentators talk about this, the howling. These are areas where um, uh, not only was the Cedars of Lebanon one of the places, but the Oaks of Bashan and the Jordan Valley is where all the supplies would come for the building of the temple. So there are some commentators that say all three of these places that I've just listed are the source of the temple building. And so they they may uh, just say, well, this is talking about the Temple Mount specifically, which you could make that argument if you want to. But, um, but most scholars say, no, all of Israel was gonna be devastated. And that's really what happened. So when we have the uh, value of hindsight, looking back and saying, wow, the Lord did devastate and really destroy um, you know, all of Israel from the north to the south. Um, now, these people were rejecting the Lord, um, doing their own thing, walking in their own ways, doing that which was right in their own sight. And you know what makes me nervous about this is um, these are the same things that are happening globally today, um, not just in Israel, but globally, the same, the same kind of rejection of the Lord and the same kind of rebellion that these people were doing in those days, even the worshiping of idols. Now you say, bro, we don't worship idols. We do, they're just, we don't worship little gold statues, but it's the same sort of idolatry. Um, and we've taken it to a whole new level. You know, when they, when they worshiped Ashtoreth, they were just worshiping sexuality in general. Today, in June, as it's Pride Month, um, you know, we're we're celebrating our pride as it, as it relates to homosexuality, LGBTQ, and all these other things. We're, we're rampantly celebrating our rebellion against the Lord. I hope you know that. An old buddy of mine, I was kind of shocked when I saw it, but I thought, you know, it's kind of true. He, he, um, he was the last guy in the world I would have pictured celebrating Pride Month, you know? Uh, and so, but on his social media, he said, in celebration of Pride Month, and then he had these pictures of these certain rocks. And um, this guy's sort of a really smart scientist kind of guy, um, but he, he, uh, he was in, in the Dead Sea area and he collected some actual brimstone from the salty area of the Dead Sea region. And he said, in celebration of Pride Month, I'm showing some of the brimstone from the Sodom Valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, that's one way to celebrate Pride Month. Um, and it's probably more uh, legit than we even wanna know because the Lord does seem to acknowledge that as the end of a, of, of a given culture. When a culture gets so uh, you know, against the Lord, especially in the area of that of sexuality and even homosexuality, which we far surpassed that, um, Today, we, we're beating our heads, you know, trying to uh, accommodate all kinds of sexual devancy and even things we used to call, you know, disorders and, you know, medical conditions. Now, we're, we're saying it's mainstream and we're celebrating it. And it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, um, it's interesting in Florida, this Breitbart article uh, uh, <clears throat> came out June 6th. Just a couple days ago, Florida fighting against Biden policies, denying school lunches to states refusing to implicate woke gender ideology. Um, the idea of these schools that are you know, helping children that are eight years old, seven years old, transition uh, from male to female, from female to male with you know, chemical castration. This is stuff that schools are trying to do without the permission of parents, mind you, in some cases. And the schools and the states that say, "Yeah, we're not going to teach our kids about the gender ideology of of the of the you know far left." Um, sadly, the 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 Biden administration, <clears throat> along with. Um, uh, the agricultural uh, department of, our, of the Biden administration. Um, in fact, uh, it was um, DeSantis who said, in Florida, we are fighting against Biden's intentionally destructive policies like denying school lunches for states that refuse to implement woke gender ideology in the schools. DeSantis said, referencing a portion of a speech he had delivered last week, um, walking Florid- Floridians uh, through the state's freedom first budget. And we wonder, you know, why are things heading in such a bad direction for America? And we could talk about inflation and gas prices and all the other things, but I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's the spiritual decline of America that's gonna be the biggest problem. It's the immorality that we're embracing. Uh, and um, man, I hope, I hope none of you are getting on board with the gay pride month because that's, that's just nothing but the Bible telling us that's just sin. Uh, it's, it's nothing but sin. I'm sorry if that hurts you or offends you, uh, but it's the word of God. And God's word makes it really, really clear. And, and it, you know, what's even more painful is it's really, really clear how destructive it is. Um, did, you know, maybe you, you've seen this, but you know, um, you know, just even in the transgender world, the suicide rate is higher than any other people group in the world, transgenderism. Um, and we, and we're, we're encouraging young children to engage at an early age in, in transgenderism and that we're acting like we're doing them a favor. But that's just the general numbers, the 40% of, of suicide rate within transgender culture. Um, these are some of the more shocking uh, numbers. Um, the uh, 86% of transgender youth uh, reporting suicidality that is deeply depressed and have comp- contemplated suicide within teen, uh, teenage youth uh, is 86%. Um, that, that's, that, should, that should wake people up, but it doesn't. Transgender youth reporting previous suicide attempts, 56%. Um, And it's really shocking as you look into the, you know, and you can get this information, by the way, off the CDC, which is not necessarily a Christian organization. but they, they admit if, you, if, if they're still there. Seems like every time I say something about CDC, then they remove it from their website uh, and stuff like that. But last time I looked, you can find all these numbers on the CDC about transgenderism and how dangerous it is for our children. And yet our woke schools, uh, a lot of them are uh, really jumping on board. And, and we wonder why America seems to be slipping and why we're not doing well and why things seem to be spiraling. Well, it's only gonna get worse uh, unless we repent of our sins. I believe that. Um, now, some of you might be tempted to say, yeah, Brett, preach it, those people. But don't forget, we are sinners too. You and I can be guilty of doing our own sinful things. And we can. I'm, I'm not saying they're worse than we are. Uh, sometimes I wonder, you know, at least, at least they're boldly saying, yeah, we're sinners uh, and they acknowledge that. Uh, do you wonder why the Lord said, "I would that you be hot or cold, but not that lukewarm"? That there's something wrong with the person who's sort of on the lukewarm category, where hey, I'm praise the Lord, I'm a Christian, and I'm I'm pretty good, but then we have our own little sins that we've hidden and tucked away, and we don't want anybody to find out about. Um, but we also uh, have to put the blame on ourselves um, when we realize that the world is sinful. Uh, so I'm not just saying, oh, those sinners out there. I'm saying, ooh, there's a sinner right here. I think that's what Paul meant, don't you think? When Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he said, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, Paul wasn't just being falsely humble here. He was acknowledging that he was a sinner just like everybody else. In fact, he was arguing that he was the chiefest of sinners. I think that's the, the right mentality. And it's funny how you and I can wrongly put greater emphasis on one sin over another. Now, don't get me wrong, there are greater consequences to different sins. Um, and, um, but we have ourselves to blame when it comes to our own sinful condition, our own sinful uh, attitudes. It makes me realize that when I read a passage like this here in Zechariah, when the people are like, what are you talking about, all this sin stuff? And they they needed to look inwardly and say, what what am I doing that's sinful and wrong? Because nobody was willing to do that. I think one of the problems is, is you think, oh, that's everybody else who's off or wrong. But meanwhile, we have our own sins that we need to deal with. I think the psalmist David put it right when he said, who can understand his errors? He said, cleanse thou me from my secret faults. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. That's a good prayer right there. Take it from a guy like David who had secret sins. Remember when he committed adultery and then murdered the girl's husband, Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba? And he tried to hide that. He had his secret sins that he was hiding, but the Lord sees everything and uh, sees it openly. So if we're sitting there, oh, look at all those LGBTQ plus people that are sinful, we have to also remember, wait a minute, I'm also a sinful person and we need to also repent of our sins, same way they do. But our world is not in a place of real repentance, we're in a place of real rebellion. And that's where Zechariah 11 starts to make me a little concerned, the howling of the leaders of Israel, the shepherds uh, that should have been caring for the flock, caring for the sheep, they're now howling and and, uh, mourning. And uh, it says, "Howl for the cedars and roar for the young lions for the pride of Jordan uh, is spoiled. Um, We have to have that same kind of um, repentance, but they they weren't really repentant, that's the problem. These people, um, now we're gonna see here in verse four, uh, someone who's feeding the sheep. Is feeding the sheep a good thing? Depends on what you feed them, exactly. Let's keep reading here in verse four. That's a a trick question. Um, It says, thus saith the Lord, my God, feed the flock of of the slaughter. Now, does that sound a little weird? Feed the flock of the slaughter. That that doesn't sound like the other feed my sheep, Peter, kind of, uh, was Peter supposed to feed my sheep so they're ready for slaughter? Uh, This is a different kind of feeding that's going on, okay? And so don't be be duped uh, by this language. You know, the Lord is saying, uh, go ahead make my day, kind of feed the flock, fatten them up is the idea for the slaughter is the idea here. Um, Feed my sheep, he says, or feed the flock of uh, of the slaughter. Verse five, whose possessors slay them uh, and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, blessed be the Lord for I am rich and their own shepherds pity them not. Basically, this is the Lord said, you guys have only fattened up the sheep for the kill. And, um, and you guys know the, sto- the rest of the story, don't you? Like these, these Jews, they got fattened up for the Babylonians. Uh, and then later they'd get fattened up for the Romans, only for the slaughter. And, and who was the ones fattening them up? The people that should have been shepherding them to safety they were just fattening them up for the kill. That's why, that's why I think we have to be careful about these false shepherds of the last days we're seeing. There, there, there could be these churches that are so-called churches. I already told you, I think last was it last Wednesday, I mentioned that was it uh, 36% of pastors, according to Barna's most recent study, 36% of the pastors in, in America have a biblical worldview. That's a problem. That's a big problem. So what are these other pastors preaching that don't have a biblical worldview or they're teaching a worldly worldview? And I believe if we're not careful, some of our so-called churches, and boy, Portland's full of those. um, You can tell uh, a lot of very quickly uh, in some ways, you know, if, if, if a church is supporting the rainbow flag on their sign out in front of their church, you can know that they're one of the shepherds fattening the sheep for the kill. Um, How do you know a good shepherd from a false shepherd or a wolf in sheep's clothing? Um, You know them by what they eat. Um, See, a good shepherd feeds the flock. Um, The bad shepherd eats the uh, flock, lamb chops for supper. And that's what's going on here in verse five. Did you see what was said here? Um, The possessors, the the shepherds uh, slay them and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, blessed be the Lord. That's a hypocritical statement. They're like, praise God, you know, basically, while they're chomping down on the people. Um, For I am rich and not their own shepherds, uh, and their own shepherds pity them not or could care less that they're being consumed. That's the condition of Israel. And we've seen that all throughout history. It's just interestingly now, as we become more and more global, we're seeing all of these things that were just localized in Zechariah's time to the Jews and Judea and Israel. But now we see those same kind of notions globally throughout the world. And the church globally is weaker and weaker and it's heartbreaking to see. Um, you know, if we, if we, God willing, have another revival in this, in this world, which would be great to see, I don't know if it's gonna happen. We should probably always hope and work toward that. Uh, but it's up to the Lord, whether we're gonna see a big revival in this, in this world or even in our country ever again. And I'd, I'd love to see that. But um, if, if there was a revival, it's gonna have to be people repenting of their sin and getting back to the word of God. And that's the only way that revival is gonna happen. It's not gonna happen by the latest worship movement of songs. Uh, it's not going to happen by who's the coolest, hippest pastor in the world. Um, the Lord doesn't really seem to work that way. He, he seems to use the weak and the foolish things to confound the wise. And if you study all the r- amazing, you know, uh, revivals of history, the Lord chose very small people to, to do great things for him. And, and that's what I pray for is that the Lord will do something great here in this country. Because man, we need it. We are so steeped in our own sin right now, and it's gotten feverish. Uh, we're watching it uh, every every place you look. Have um, you guys have noticed? By the way, interesting, just observation. You know, Top Gun, uh, Maverick came out, um, and you know, uh, I reluctantly admit that I saw the, the first one because back in the '80s, you know, back when I was in the '80s, I thought, oh, I, you know, everybody saw Maverick or Top Gun, and I have to admit, I liked it. Uh, even though there was some slimy stuff in it, you know, and some cussing. And, uh, and my parents probably didn't know that I went and saw it back then uh, when I was, uh, when was about high school. I don't know what it was. But, um, but what, what everybody's marveling about right now is this, this new Top Gun movie. There's no wokeness in it. There's no homosexuality in it. Um, I think there's a, a little bit of cussing from what I, I understand, and, and it's, it's, uh, but, but actually, um, they're, they're, everybody's kind of marveling how this is one of the biggest movies ever now, um, and it's actually kind of clean. Everybody's scratching their heads going, you mean you can do a clean movie without a bunch of wokeness, and people will actually like it? That's what's going on. If you're not in reading what's going on around this, this is this is the thing, and and you kind of have to say, boy, if the if our world could only understand that if we break off stupid sinful stuff, things get get better. They look brighter. Like holiness. I'm not calling Top Gun Maverick a holy movie. <laughs> Don't get me wrong here. Um, I'm just saying that when you dump the junk stuff and you get back to just things that are right and pure, and you know, um, it's an amazing thing how uh, we're just one step of repentance away as a nation from getting rid of all this sinful stuff to getting back to where things are actually really good before God, good with God. Um, All that to say, um, what you need to do is, is uh, understand the difference between the good shepherd and the false shepherd. The good shepherd feeds his flock, not fattening them up for the kill, but to, to satisfy their hungry souls. It sort of reminds me, I think, of the Psalm 23, of course, you know, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, you're satisfied. That's the idea, I shall not want. Um, and he makes me to lie down in green pastures. What, 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 what makes a lamb lie down? Um, well, as an old shepherd, my sheep wouldn't lie down unless they were fed and felt safe. Um, then my sheep would lie down in the barnyard. But if they felt skittish about something or worried, they were always standing up and running when a cricket chirped. My sheep would ah! and run the other way and stuff like that. Uh, sheep, sheep have been known, by the way, to, um, to be like spooked by, you know, really small things like a mouse or whatever. And a whole flock of sheep will run off a cliff to their death because they heard some mouse squeak or something like, like sheep are really famous for doing dumb stuff like that. But he says, you know, he, the Lord, the good shepherd makes us to lie down Uh, in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters and he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. So um, the the juxtaposition here of the false shepherd is, man, these guys sold the sheep out for the slaughter, fattened them up for the kill and could care less and didn't have pity on them at all. That's the true sign of a false shepherd is someone who doesn't really care for the sheep. And by the way, verse four there, where it says, thus saith the Lord, my God, feed the flock uh, of the slaughter. This is where some of your newer translations get it actually, in my opinion, better. As far as translations go, the uh, NIV says, um, "You know, the, the, what is the Lord, my God says, the shepherd, the flock marked for slaughter or uh, the ESV, become shepherd of the flock, doomed to the slaughter. That's the idea. These sheep aren't going to be saved. They're being fattened for the kill. So who are these shepherds or possessors, uh, as called there in verse five, whose possessors or shepherds, same group, they're, uh, they're basically haters of their own people, the Jews. Um, you could put in there, by the way, the possessors might be Babylonians and the Romans and all the other empires that came and went hating Jews. You could also put them in there. But most uh, commentaries argue that these are their own shepherds. They're false guides of their own false prophets that led them to their own destruction. And so that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, by the way, you know, like Luke chapter 21 reminds us that this is what happened. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword. They shall be led away captive to all nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. This was Jesus saying, this is what's coming. And it's again, because they weren't following the good shepherd, even in Jesus's time. Um, By the way, that verse uh, 24 of Luke 21, there's the times of the Gentiles, and then there's the fullness of the Gentiles. Don't be confused on that. Jesus here talked about the times of the Gentiles, and that would be when Jerusalem would be lost in AD 70, until the Gentiles would not rule over Jerusalem anymore. Um, So the times of the Gentiles refer to that period, but the fullness of the Gentiles, where do we read about the fullness of the Gentiles? Anybody? uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, talks about um, the fullness of the Gentiles. So that's gonna be the rapture of the church. Then the rapture of the church happens, then the Lord's gonna intervene in Jerusalem again and uh, end the, 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 the times of the Gentiles. So just just some clarification on some prophecy terms. Times of the Gentiles is from AD 70 all the way through the present age to the rapture of the church. The fullness of the Gentile is, is when the full length of that time is over, that's the rapture of the church, as talked about in Reve- uh, Romans 11. Well, anyway, all that to say, uh, the Jews will be under control of Gentiles. And by the way, that's why the Temple Mount has remained. Remember the guy with the patch that I showed you the picture of a few weeks ago, Moshe Dayan? And we raised the question, why did he give the Temple Mount back? And there's no reason he did it other than stupidity, some people say, but Moshe Dayan wasn't a stupid guy. So why did he do it? To fulfill Bible prophecy. Because the Bible said the Gentiles would be trotting down the Temple Mount until, so, you know, the Jews are not gonna possess the Temple Mount until the fullness of the Gentiles is over. Just doing the math of what's gonna happen in the world. Well, so um, those people that, uh, verse five, it says that those that sell the Jews out, they're gonna say, blessed be the Lord. They're gonna act like they're giving glory to God for their own gain at the expense of the Jewish people. Um, and, um, you know, we see that today. Political leaders, religious leaders selling out the flock. Uh, discord, disunity uh, would lead to um, uh, the Jews of uh, falling and not following the Lord. Well, that takes us to verse six. He says, For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. But lo, I will deliver the men, everyone, into his neighbor's hand, and into the hand of his king. And they shall smite the land and out of their hand will I not deliver them." Interesting, um, not a place you wanna to get to uh, with the Lord, in your relationship with the Lord, but the Lord kinda says, I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land. And, and this is a theme we read out throughout the Bible where God's, there's a point where God just kinda says, I'm, I'm done, time's up. And there's language that maybe some of you are remember, familiar with. You know, the Lord says, I will give them over. Uh, my spirit will not always strive. Remember um, Genesis, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Genesis 6, 3. My spirit will not always strive with man. Man, you don't want to reach that point where God says, yeah, I'm going to withdraw my spirit from you. Um, you know, 1 Timothy chapter 4 talks about the last days in the same way. Now the spirit speak expressly, that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and check this out, having their conscience seared as with a hot iron. Um, Remember Romans chapter one says that eventually the Lord will give them over to their own lusts, especially in Romans one, you can't deny it. It's about the homosexual agenda. And those are saying, we can do this. who cares what God says? And the Lord says, I'll give you over to your own lusts and your own desires. And it also says that you're doomed. And those who have pleasure in such things that do those things, you're also doomed. But that's something we have to be careful of as Christians, having this seared conscience, no more feeling, desensitized to what the Lord says, this is wrong and this is sinful. Again, I I turned to David, the psalmist, to to remedy this because David, like us, we we have that sinful tendency. So what do you do? David made this prayer uh, like he did before. He said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold with me thy free spirit. This is what David, the psalmist, would say in sort of, that checkpoint to say, Lord, will you, will you create in me a clean heart? Because man, we live in this dirty world and your heart gets dirtied and we need to make this prayer, I think, often. It's a good prayer from David. So all that to say, this is what this is all talking about, is the Jews just becoming seared in their conscience. They've given themselves over to sin and the Lord says, because of that, you're gonna, you're gonna fall into the hand of another king. Um, you say into the hand of his king, like the Jew is calling them his king. What's this about? Well, it's kind of interesting, by the way, Um, you know, um, when the Lord would, some people might say this is brutal that the Lord will turn them over to another king. But you gotta remember the Jews rejected the king of kings. When Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the king showed up, they rejected him Um, and they wanted their own king. Uh, Just like in the day when they said, we want our own king and God gave them Saul. Later on in the times of Christ, they said, they said, we will not have this man rule over us. Remember John 19, verses 15 through 16. But they cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him, Pilate, saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now think about that last statement there, the Jews. How hard do you have to be? How, how stubborn do you have to be to get to this place? where the Jews are saying, here's their Messiah, Jesus. We will not have this man rule over us, but Caesar. We have no king, but Caesar. Oh, Caesar was wacko, crazy, sinful, weirdo. And the Jews are under the oppressive iron fist of the Romans. But so stubborn are they. They'd rather be under the iron fist of the Romans than to have Jesus be their king. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And the Jews got what they demanded. Um, to be ruled over by Caesar instead of Jesus. And that would ultimately lead to their crushing in AD 70. This is all part of what Zachariah is prophesying. You know, verse six is, is really talking about that when it says, and into the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land out of their hand and I will not deliver them. That's exactly what happened when the Romans wiped out the Jews in AD 70. Fulfilled prophecy right there. Sad, but true. Well, then verse seven, we have two sticks. Two sticks, yep, check it out. It says, and I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, or sticks, and the one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Now, this is an interesting thing. Um, This is sort of characteristic of some of the other prophets that you and I have read about. And like when we saw, you know, Ezekiel and some of the other prophets doing those more demonstrative kinds of actions, Isaiah walking around naked for a year and people are like, uh, Isaiah, what are you doing? He says, even as I am naked, so are you naked before the Lord, Thus saith the Lord. Like being a prophet in those days would have been a tough gig. But Zachariah's his little illustration is not too tough. He's, he's got two sticks. Now, now, um, most scholars believe the context of this is the shepherd of this—not only this chapter, but even the verse. He says in—you uh, know—he says in verse seven, "I will feed the flock of the slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock." And I took me two sticks: one called beauty, one called Benz. Remember in the Psalm, you know, where where the—you um, know—the psalmist declared. He said, "Thy rod and thy staff." they comfort me. Remember that in Psalm 23, the last part of the, or, you know, middle part of the Psalm 23, Shepherd Psalm? There's two sticks there. And they serve two very different purposes, FYI. Um, He's not just being rhetorically redundant. He's talking about two implements. The rod was a shorter implement, kind of like a club. And the staff was what you would picture as a shepherd having a longer pole. And some of them throughout history had the hook at the top. Um, uh, you know, and that'd be the shepherd's staff. So the rod and the staff, two sticks. Um, and, um, and you know, the, the, the tall stick would be used to keep the sheep out of danger, more of a protection also for direction, for guiding the sheep, the rod, the club, well, that was to fend off predators, uh, the club, you know, a a predator over the head, but it was also used, the, the rod was used for correction of the sheep. And, um, and we, uh, we've talked about that. you know. Um, if you read Philip, I think it's, is it Philip Keller's book, Shepherd Look at Psalm 23? Great book, we've got it in the bookstore over there. Um, but it's a great easy read about a, a guy from the Middle East who was a shepherd, and he talks about the Psalm 23, a Middle Eastern shepherd look at Psalm 23, it's really cool. But he reminds that sometimes those shepherds would actually take a sheep, if it was prone to going wandering away, he would use his rod and break the legs of the sheep, the little lamb. And so what he would do then is he would carefully bind the little legs of the lamb up and put a splint on it. And then he would put that sheep, that little lamb on his shoulders and carry him around for weeks and weeks. Um, And that little lamb was totally dependent on the shepherd for those weeks. And the little lamb would become more familiar with the shepherd's voice and would become accustomed to being with the shepherd. So when finally the little legs started to mend, um, he would set the little lamb down and he would stay right at his side from that day forward. Um, and that's kind of a cool illustration. You're like, wait a minute, Brett. So those Hallmark Christmas cards that have the shepherd, and it's all cozy and it's on his, he just broke the little lamb's legs. Merry Christmas. It's like, that doesn't sound very fun. But some of you have been there, haven't you? Where the Lord had to break you a little bit. It was a corrective, it was painful, but the Lord in his love for you is willing, whom the Lord loves, he does what? He chastens, right? And that's the idea there. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, these are the two sticks probably um, that uh, Zachariah is referring to, two sticks. But he names them uh, beauty and beast. I mean, beauty and bands. Uh, now, now before we get to uh, the NIV, I think, and the SV, what do they call them? Favor and union. Is that what they are? Favor and union. Those are good, those are good translations. Um, favor and beauty, uh, Uh, One's one's meant to be uh, favorable and beautiful, and the other idea is is the bands. You're like you mean like Rolling Stones? No, like being bound up together in unity, not in a bad way. By the way, do you know that's what the word religion means to be bound? Um, It's a funny thing because the old. You remember we used to give me that old-time religion. Um, That's when we liked religion, when religion was a good thing, and it meant being bound together in sort of a cool binding of Christian people together. That's what the original word religion meant is to be bound up. But it's sadly become the word bound up like religion and becoming crazy religious in a bad way. And it's more legalism and stuff like that. Well, that's the idea here. Um, the, the, the bands, it's, the idea is that it's union. They were banded together with beauty or favor and union or unity is the idea. So you're like, oh, that's really cool, Brett. But wait, look what happens. So he's got the beauty in the band sticks. And then another very confusing verse for so many, verse eight. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month and my soul loathed them and their soul also abhorred me. Um, Now in verse eight, there are over 40 different interpretations that I've come across on what this is talking about. Prophets, priests, and kings, is that the three? Or uh, what was uh, the overseers of the time? That's more contextual, what was happening earlier. Was it talking about the shepherds or the destruction of Rome or all that? There's all kinds of, you can, you can do your own study on this, but what does what this talk about? I don't know. But here's one that I find could be interesting because we have the v- advantage of looking back to when this really was f- most fully fulfilled. And we've already told you that. Verse six was uh, fulfilled AD 70, when the Romans ultimately crushed Jerusalem. We've already kind of established that. So who were the the shepherds or the leaders during the time when that happened? Kind of an interesting question. And I'm not saying this for sure. I'm just putting this in the could be possible category, but the overseers, the leaders of the time during the destruction of of Jerusalem in AD 70, there would be three specific um, leaders of that region of that time for the Jews. And let's go over those real quick. The, The first one that we talk about is the Pharisees. Um, Jesus called them blind guides. The Pharisees were a legalistic bunch. Um, They were considered to be the most holy of all their people but they were hypocrites and blind guides and Jesus had a lot to say against the Pharisees. The second group of leaders of Jesus' time, AD 70-ish and uh, time of Christ, were the Sadducees. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. They also didn't believe in miracles. That's why they were sad, you see. Uh, that 's a problem if you don 't believe in the resurrection or in miracles. Um, the third group were uh, would be called the Herodians and they were they were basically hoping to usher in the kingdom of God um, yeah, politically uh, and there 's a group of that today same same thing happening today as the Herodians uh, the kingdom now or um, um, you know, so there's these people that think, well, we gotta elect Christian people into office and change the world and then Jesus can come back, uh, usher in the kingdom. Nope, that's not gonna happen. The kingdom's gonna be brought in when Jesus is good and ready to come. And, uh, and that's really important to understand that. But I digress. Um, all that to say, these were the three uh, leaders. And by the way, we still see the same things today. Le- the Pharisees, legalism. And legalism is an ugly death blow to, to God's goodness. And His grace. We have to be careful about that. Um, and then the second group, the Sadducees. We see that today denying the 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 working power of the Lord and the moving of His Holy Spirit in His church. Um, a lot of the churches become impotent because they're dead. They're spiritually dead. There's no Spirit of God moving in churches. We need the Spirit to move, and we're not supposed to quench the Spirit. First Thessalonians five talks about. Um, and so you got the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the denying of the miracles like the Sadducees. But then you also have the group, like I mentioned, the Herodians who uh, you know, want to bring in the kingdom uh, their own way. That's not the way it's going to happen. So um, that goes back to then verse nine. So again, verse, 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 uh, verse eight is hard for people to uh, translate or understand, but those are some possible things. Verse nine, then said I, I will not feed you. That, uh, that that dieth, let it die. And that, that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat everyone the flesh of another. Ooh, what is that talking about? Cannibalism. <laughs> and by the way, that happened in several times in, in Israel history, by the way, some really dark times when the Jews resorted to cannibalism under, when they were under siege that happened with the Babylonian siege and uh, also with some of the Assyrian besieging of Israel. So it, was, it got pretty dark and pretty brutal uh, eating the, their own people. Um, by the way, I've, 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 been, I've met cannibals. Uh, when we went to Vanuatu, uh, one time I hiked across uh, Pentecost Island to this tribe called Bunlap, And there, there, were, there were some old fellers there that were still alive at that time that had eaten missionaries. Um, now, fortunately, when I was there, it was illegal to eat missionaries uh, any longer. <laughs> but when we hiked into this little town, just me and this other guy, we hike in there and it's a village, like mud huts and people naked, spears, bones in their nose, that whole thing. Like just told National Geographic. And we're uh, hanging out with these guys. We get the permission from the chief to come in and, and to their village. So we walk in and they all come running around us and they're looking at us and touching our, our white skin and you know, stuff. And and then the chief walks up and, and uh, lifts my arm up like this. And he's like lifting my arm. And, and he says something like, uh, I don't know. And, and then they all laughed. And I was like, um, and my interpreter said, oh, the chief just said, you look like you'd be good to eat. Ha ha ha. Everyone's a comedy comic, you know. It's like uh anyway, we didn't stay there long. Um <laughs> Uh, there was a Christian village not far away, Ranwas, where we went and visited the people from Ranwas. Uh, that was nice. They didn't make jokes about eating meat. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, uh, but um, all that to say, um, this idea of, of uh, the sickness of sin got to where they were eating each other up. And we can talk about biting and devouring one another. Like that's one of the things that a sinful condition does to people is we destroy each other uh, and we consume one another. There's a whole thought process there. Verse 10. So I took my staff, even beauty. See, there's the idea of the staff, the shepherd's staff, beauty, and cut it asunder. He he chops the beauty in half. Are you guys following this? He chops it in half and cuts it asunder that I might break my covenant, which I have made with all the people. And it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of God. Now question the Lord just says through Zechariah the prophet, that he's gonna break the beauty, the staff, and he says that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. Can you guess what false teaching uses this verse as a very important verse to support their understanding? Replacement, Replacement theology. theology, correct. Because here's where the Lord breaks his covenant with the Jews, right here. And this is their big verse. This is the only one they've got. This is C. God broke the covenant with the people of Israel. Now, this is a very poor interpretation of scripture and you have to, you can't let, when you take an interpretation of scripture, it can't uh, contradict other scripture. Are you guys with me on that? Like, It's got to all fit together. So what this does is these people are saying, well, God broke the uh, Abrahamic covenant right here, saying God no longer is covenanted with his people. He breaks them off. When Zechariah broke the staff, that was the end of his covenant with Israel. And that's their point. The argument on that is really elementary and basic. There are tons of covenants that God makes with the Jews. And man, if you're a Bible reader, you realize there's tons of covenants, but there's some that are unconditional covenants. And then there's other ones that have conditions or have requirements or else the covenant is gonna be broken with them. Um, let me give you a couple examples of that. Um, like, for example, Second Samuel chapter 7. In fact, um, you can either listen to me or or you can turn there if you're fast. 2 Samuel 7, um, verse 12. Let me read you. This is a great example of one of the covenants the Lord makes. And you tell me, is this a conditional covenant or an unconditional covenant? It's uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 through 17. Excuse me. It says in verse 12. And it's, uh, it says, And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels and I will establish his kingdom. Who are we talking to? This is Nathan the prophet talking to David. Um, He shall build, verse 13, a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be an everlasting throne forever. According to all the words and according to all the visions, so did Nathan the prophet speak to David. Conditional covenant or unconditional covenant? That's the Davidic covenant and it's an unconditional covenant. God says, Even if you sin it up, I'm gonna judge you and I'm gonna punish you, but I will not, even if you sin. He says here, I'm I'm still not gonna break my Davidic covenant. That is that someone from the line of David, the the descendants of David would sit in the throne of Jerusalem. And and this is a great prophecy that's still yet to be fulfilled. Where Christ who's of the line of David, remember when they said of Jesus, Jesus, our son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus was related to David. He's a rightful heir to the throne and he will sit upon the throne in Jerusalem uh, at the second coming of Christ. That's a covenant that God made with the Jews that is one of the everlasting covenants. And it's not a conditional covenant. There, uh, another unconditional covenant, by the way, is, um, is the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, and that's another one that's not based on, uh, you know, Abraham doing the right thing. Now, Now, there's hundreds of other covenants the Lord makes that are conditional covenants. And I'm not going to go over all those because really, if you want to know what those are, just read the book of Deuteronomy. The whole book of Deuteronomy is a bunch of conditional covenants. I call them for you computer programmers. Remember, you guys remember basic when you used to have basic computer programming and there was the if then statement, you know, and and there's still things like that in, in, you know, digital, you know, programming and stuff. But if this happens, then the other happens and there's a consequence, cause and effect kind of thing. Well, the book of Deuteronomy is full of that. If you keep my statutes and judgments, I will bless you and keep you safe from your enemies. But if you worship idols and you know, worship Baal and Ashtaroth and Moloch, then I will withdraw my protection from you and you will be defeated by your enemies. Over and over in the book of Deuteronomy, if then statements, conditional covenants. This is, the, this is the covenant that was broken that Zachariah is referring to here is when the people rejected God, rebelled against God, and the, the staff called beauty was broken. And the Lord says here in, in Zachariah, when he's talking about this breaking of the staff, which, which he defines and he says, I will break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. And those are those other covenants that have to do with the protection of The Lord the Lord told him, if you do these things, I'm gonna lift my protection from you. He's not gonna do away with the Jews, but he's gonna allow the Jews to go through a time of massive correction. Are you guys with me on that? Don't be duped by this, this single little verse, people saying, so you, God's done with the Jews and the church has replaced the Jews and we are now as covenanted people. Eh. We are saved and we are covenanted by God and we get to be, the, what's the language of the New Testament? You and I get to be grafted into the vine of who? The Jews, that's what's happened. You and I have been grafted in. And, and the Catholic church and the Presbyterians and a bunch of others, they're the ones who say, nope, the Jews have been cut off and they are no longer God's chosen people. What happens if you cut off the, the Jew tree and we've been grafted into that vine? Yeah, come on, let's do the math here, folks. That's not a good future for us. So you better be hoping that if God, if God bailed out on the Jews, he bailed out on you too. Um, God does not... Break his his command his covenants um, the, unless it was a conditional covenant like this one, but anyway, well I, I digress. Um, <clears throat> the Abrahamic covenant, by the way, you could you could talk about that from uh, um, you know uh, oh Genesis fifteen. In fact, let's take a quick peek of that Genesis fifteen verse seventeen through eighteen. It came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those places. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Does anybody remember what this is called in Jewish tradition? Cutting covenant, right. And this is the way you sign a contract. And when God made his covenant with Abraham, he did this cutting covenant thing. And what's so cool about this, and the reason I posted this, these two verses is who walked through? that? The tradition of cutting covenant was the two parties would join hands and walk between the animals that had been sliced in two. And you walk between them and say, if you break this covenant, you're gonna be like this chopped in half cow. Little picture image, it'd be great if you're, you know, on Craigslist buying somebody's car and you get out a cow, chop it in half and say, now, if you don't pay me for this car, you'll be like this chopped in half cow. That's the way they did it in those days. But in this particular case, the Lord caused Abraham to go into a sort of a sleep and the Lord himself passed through the covenant. The point is, this cutting covenant of Genesis 15 through 17 through 18 is, is based on the Lord making a promise to, to Abraham, not Abraham, keeping his promise. So all that to say, those are the covenants that are unconditional covenants and the Lord is st- gonna stick with them. By the way, if, I always like to say this, and we'll end with this, this particular thing on this point. If God bails on the Jews and says, yeah, I'm done with my covenants with you and chops them off, what's keeping him from doing that with you? If you believe in replacement theology, what keeps you safe? Because you're just as bad as the Jews, maybe even worse. Why wouldn't God say, yeah, I'm kind of done with those atheic creakers too. Um, that's not the Lord we serve. We serve a God as mercy endures for how long? Forever, amen to that. Well, <clears throat> let's keep going here. Uh, where were we? Verse 12, no, verse 11. No, we already read verse 11, right? <clears throat> well, we'll just do it in case I didn't, verse 11. <laughs> Uh, so that, that staff, it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me uh, waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So um, this is just confirming of the breaking of that staff called beauty. You say, "Well, what about bands? Uh, the, other, the other stick? Well, verse 12. And I said unto them, "If you think good, give me any, any price, and if not, forbear." So they weighed for my price, 30 pieces of silver. Uh-oh, this starts to get weird and familiar, right? But it gets even more crazy. Check out verse 13. And, and the Lord said unto me, cast it to the potter, a goodly price that I was um, prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now you say, Brett, what is this? This is an amazing little tucked away section of scripture verses 12 and 13 that is amazingly prophetic. Um, and by the way, uh, jot this down in your notes, Matthew chapter 26 um, and 27, because this, these are more of these amazing Zechariah prophecies that were perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, of course, was betrayed um, by Judas Iscariot um, with the 30 pieces of silver and um, and he betrayed Christ there in Matthew 26, 14 and 16. But then in 27, verses three through 10, let me just read it to you. Then Judas, which had betrayed Jesus, when saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean he repented. It means the way that that's phrased is more like he, he uh, realized he was doomed, not repenting like, save me. And he brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned and that I betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what does that to us? see thou to that? And Judas cast down the pieces of silver into the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for, for to put them in the treasury because it is the price of blood. This is typical religion, sanctimonious behavior. Uh, we can't put this money in the temple because it's blood money we paid for, you know, and we don't wanna defile the temple even though they just killed God. You see the problem here? <clears throat> that's, that's weirdness religion at its finest. So they took counsel and they bought with the money potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled of that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying they took the 30 pieces of the price of him that was valued. Whom they of the children of Israel did value and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. What an amazing thing that Zachariah, 500 years before this happened, he gets these four main elements of this story. In fact, notice with me, you can jot these down. The first thing was the price, 30 pieces of silver. And by the way, whenever you see someone sold for pieces of silver, whether it's 30 or 20 or whatever, it's worth taking note of the Bible. Does anybody remember who else was sold out for 20 pieces of silver? Joseph of the Old Testament, sold out by who? His brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, if you would sold out Joseph for 20 pieces of silver and uh, left him for dead. Like it's an amazing correlation, all this, but, but Zachariah says 30 pieces of silver, the price, but also the site of transaction. It's, it says it right here in the house of the Lord at the end of verse 13. Zachariah gets that part right as well. And then the nature of the transaction. Um, uh, uh, pardon me, the ultimate recipient was the potter's field, was the one who finally got the the, the, the money, which is kind of interesting. Um, and then the, um, uh, the nature of the transaction was the purchase of blood. All of this was mentioned by Zachariah the prophet. Now, um, this is just proving that Jesus was the Messiah, um, just, just because Zachariah nails this and Jesus fulfilled this. That's the simple la- layer of this. But there's even a deeper layer that I find interesting because um, what was the potter's field for? It was a field that was good for nothing. It's where they, they threw broken pieces of pottery. You couldn't farm it. You couldn't walk on it. It was just a waste of land. But what they did do with that potter's field in Jerusalem in those days is they would bury the homeless, the broken down, the lost, nobody who had family members. If somebody was found dead in the streets and nobody claimed them, they would bury them in the potter's field. And and there's a picture there of, of, I think, even in a beautiful way, the redemptive nature of the Lord. Jesus, his blood, paid for 30 pieces of silver, that same money purchased the potter's field where strangers would be buried in. And I, I believe there's a re- redemptive part of that. You know, the, Who are we? We're broken pieces of pottery. We're broken and messed up. And some of you say, well, Brett, I'm no flashy Christian. I'm not dialed in or all perfect. Good news, the Lord saves even to the uttermost. Um, who was it? One of the old revival preachers said, the Lord saves even to the guttermost." And he was talking about the people in the gutter uh, in the city that he was preaching in. Um, You know, when when we are broken, there's a place where Jesus has redeemed us. And man, we could talk more about the potter. Jeremiah 18 is the beautiful uh, picture of the Jeremiah and the potter. Zechariah 11 right here, and then Matthew 26 and 27. You put those three passages together and you have this beautiful picture of the the betrayal of Christ and the, the purchasing of the potter's field. Well, what about the other staff? Verse 14. Then I cut uh, asunder mine other staff, even bands, um, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So this is speaking of the unity um, that's broken, even as the beauty was broken because of their sinful rebellion, so would their unity be broken and their rebellion would cause that. Um, and then um, uh, that, that speaks of both. You know, you, you could talk about. Um, by this time, you know, they'd already split from Judah and Israel. So, if you're thinking they're referring to that, I don't think so. I think this is talking about the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews. Now, in uh, between verses 14 and 15, we have the church age gap. I'm just going to give you this free because we're running out of time. You might draw a line between verse 14 and 15 and say the church age between those two verses. Um, and I could spend a lot of time explaining that. Um, and you are saying, but you're just making that up. Remember the gap? The church age is always with the Jews pictured as a gap. Um, and Jesus, Jesus even talked about this gap, or he, he implied it. Do you remember when Jesus in Luke chapter four went to the synagogue in Nazareth? I've been to the Naz- Nazareth synagogue, by the way, where Jesus read this. And um, he, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he starts reading there in uh, Luke chapter four, verse 20 and 21. And then he, after reading part of the Luke, the, the Isaiah passage, Isaiah 61 was what he was reading, but he didn't, didn't even finish one of the sentences, which was a total no-no. Like a rabbi was not supposed to only read part of a section of a, let alone leave a sentence half filled. But let me, let me, let me show you the part that Jesus left out. So Jesus is reading this passage at the synagogue in Isaiah 61, one and two. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings, unto the meek, he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. And see how there's a comma there after the word Lord? That's where Jesus rolled up the scroll and sat down. And all the people there, what did they do? Well, the Bible says in in chapter four, it says, and he closed the book and the eyes of them that were in the synagogue fastened on him. They were staring him down. And then he turned to them and he said, "'Today this is fulfilled in your ears.'" Now, had he read on and finished the sentence, would he have been able to say that? See, because what, what we're seeing here is Jesus talking about his first coming and his second coming. The, the first part of those verses one and two, all are speaking of his first coming right up until the word Lord. And then it says, "'And the day of vengeance of our God "'to comfort all that mourn.'" That part was yet to come. That's gonna come in his second coming. So Jesus closes up the scroll to say, all of these things I just read have been fulfilled, but the last sentence hasn't yet. That's the gap we're talking about. The second coming versus the first coming. The church age after Jesus rose and ascended into heaven to the rapture of the church, that's an age that's called the gap and we see that. And that gap, you need to see that in verses 14 and 15. Are you guys with me on that? Because look what we get into in verse 15. We start talking about the foolish shepherd. Anybody want to guess who the ultimate foolish shepherd is? Anybody? Antichrist, correct. Let's read verse 15. And the Lord said unto me, take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that standeth still, but he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws or literally hooves, better translation because they're sheep, in pieces. So this is a shepherd that's gonna rip the sheep apart is the idea. And then verse 17, woe unto the idle shepherd um, that leaveth the flock. Now, some of your newer translations use different words for the word idol, but most scholars of the Hebrew language say not idol like I-D-L-E, but it should be I-D-O-L like idolatrous shepherd is the idea. Not only is he an idolatrous guy worshiping munitions, we know that from Daniel chapter 11, but he's also sets himself up as an idol to be worshiped in Revelation 13, right? So he is literally an idol shepherd um, that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm, weaponry, military, and upon his right eye, his arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly, utterly darkened. Anybody want to forgive the pun, take a stab at what happens here. <laughs> what happens to the Antichrist in the tribulation period? Anybody? He gets a wound. He gets wounded and, he, and then he gets sort of healed, sort of seemingly miraculously. Um, in fact, oh man, it's so late, I probably shouldn't do this. But in your own time, look up Revelation 13, 11 through 15. Where um, you know we see this beast come out of the earth, which is Antichrist, and it says that he'll get a wound, uh, and and that wound will seem even unto death, a wound by a sword, and he still uh, did live. But then um, there's a whole thing in, in Revelation 13:15, where it says, in, you know the, the the he'll have power to give life to this image, uh, and the image would both speak and cause as many would not, would would worship the beast. Uh, the image of the beast that would have been killed, but miraculously is healed. That's all in Revelation 13. 13. Talking about the Antichrist. This is also foretold here, this assassination attempt of the Antichrist that's gonna happen. Speaking of assassination attempts, did you see they've released uh, uh, Hinkley, the the one who tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan? Uh, He's out. I bet you're feeling great about that but he's a songwriter now and he sings songs. And he's, he's on YouTube. You can look up Hinckley on his playing his guitar and he's as good as gold now. To me, if you try to assassinate a pre- president of the United States, you should be locked away forever. Uh, you should never get out. Sorry if you were insane, tough bananas. Uh, you still shouldn't get out, but he's out frolicking around now. Uh, that's interesting to me. But um, apparently this uh, assassination attempt, he'll be injured head and arm, uh, according to Zachariah, Um, and uh, who knows, possibly uh, the head wound takes out an eye. Like there's some interesting things we could talk about, about Zachariah's deal here. But but all that to say, um, in chapter uh, 11, we kind of end with this whole antichrist imagery, um, and we'll see more of that, by the way. But good news, chapter 12 is gonna be more about the true shepherd. So we got the false shepherd in chapter 11, and in chapter 12 next week. Uh, We'll pick up the true shepherd. Um, I love how in chapter 12, we're gonna come across, across the phrase, in that day, 17 times in chapter 12. We're gonna come across the word Jerusalem, 22 times in chapter 12. And the nations of the world are gonna be talked about 13 times. And it's gonna be about the end of the whole deal in chapter 12. So there you have it. Next week, we'll cover that. Let's pray together. And Lord, how thankful we are um, that we have the blessed hope of your return for your church, the rapture of the church, where we get to be with you. We know that the stage is being set for this false shepherd who's going to come and dupe the world, Lord. Your word is clear on what's going to happen. But we get to be with you and uh, be with the true shepherd where no man can pluck us out of your hand. How thankful we are for that, Lord. I pray that the believers here studying this passage tonight, that we find ourselves just comforted knowing that you're the great shepherd that we can put our trust in. Lord, I pray for revival in this world. We're so far from you and we continue to spiral away from you. Lord, we we do pray for revival that people be broken before you and saved and repent of their sins. But unless that happens, Lord, we, we see that the days seem to be coming soon where you're gonna intervene and the day of the Lord is at hand. We really believe that. But until then, help us to serve you, walk with you, and be bold in our faith, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.